The Mitchell's Front Page Podcast is brought to you by Geelong Bank. Listen live on 94.7 The Pulse, Mondays and Tuesdays from 9 till 11. Well, I caught up with Davina Montgomery last night because she wasn't available today and we recorded a conversation. Lots to talk about, so I've decided to split it up over two parts. We'll do the first part now before the news and the second part after the news. But I began by asking her to react to the Premier's announcement yesterday. Oh, look, a little bit of joy, Mitch, and a little bit of just like, wow. (laughs) I don't think, I think at the moment I'm in this phase where I'm a little bit surprised every time we're getting these extra steps and how quickly they're coming. Obviously, very very, very closely linked with our levels of vaccination. And the 90%, yeah, I mean, I think initially I was one of those sceptical people. I, I didn't think that we would get to 90%. I thought we would get close, but I um, I wondered whether we would get 90%. And But I was thinking 90% of total population, not just an over 16s or as it, we know that it will definitely be over 12s. And I assume it will actually end up being more like the over 5s which would kick that total population vaccination level well into the 90s, um, which is quite extraordinary. And even on the global scale, while we were lagging so far behind, we're catching up so fast and it it is so widespread. So I think a lot of those fears about how many people would remain unvaccinated and what does that mean for someone who is immunocompromised um, we know that you can have two doses of the vaccine and still be sitting with immunity at around 20 or 30%. If your immune system doesn't operate very well, you know, vaccines can only do so much. So all of those signs that we see about who do you get vaccinated for? Well, you know, firstly, of course, we should get vaccinated for ourselves. Secondly, get vaccinated for the people that you love. But thirdly, get vaccinated for the person that you might be working past, that even though they've done the right things and social distance, wearing masks, had their vaccines still remain really highly vulnerable to this virus and to many other viruses. Yeah, I think that's exactly right. And there'll be some people that are reticent to get out there and get amongst it, and that's probably fair enough. I don't think we should be dragging people out if they don't want to. And if you'd like to still wear a mask outside, go for it, absolutely. But now uh, the choice is really up to the people rather than the government saying this is what you can do and what you can't do. Yeah, it is. And it's great validation, isn't it? Uh, after what's been an incredibly difficult couple of years, uh, people in Melbourne have done it as tough as anywhere in the world, apart from, you know, potentially having roaming bands of questionable police knocking on, you know, people's doors and, and threatening them in general. Um, you know, we left that to protesters, unfortunately, and thankfully there was not that many of them. But other, if you take out of that equation of some of the parts of the world where um, people have been genuinely under threat from being out of their front doors, then Melbourne's done it so tough and Victorians, the rest of us here in regional Victoria, have not been that far behind. It's been incredibly tough. We've definitely had a harder road than anyone else. Um, in Australia, that's just probably a bit of dumb luck and, you know, maybe being that colder city of the huge population um, Sydney's that bit warmer. Maybe that's helped with them. I don't know. But it does feel great. It it feels fantastic to have hope that there will be a kind of, you know, return to something, a new normal, I think, but something that we're really familiar with, you know, just those little moments of joy when you go, I can walk out the front door without a mask on and go for a walk and feel the, you know, hopefully the warming up summer breeze on our faces. Little things like that, I think, are really important, being able to gather and catch up with people that we've missed so much um that's going to be incredibly important i think it's going to make a pretty amazing christmas i know that um but i i'm one of those people too i think that i feel 
I get a shock every time I walk into, say, go down to the supermarket at an unexpected time um, in the middle of the day, like it was today. It was sunny. There's car parks are full. There's people everywhere. And it, it feels like a shock and it actually feels a little bit scary still to have that many people in close contact with you, which is, um, I don't know, maybe it's a bit silly, but it does feel that way. And I was sort of quite thankful for my mask in that environment and I think maybe I'll be holding on to it for a bit longer. Um, what I would really like to think, though, is that in the early days of this pandemic and we were trying to figure out what to do and, you know, we wear gloves, we wash our hands and then, oh, we should have been wearing a mask the whole time. A lot of the, the Asian countries were doing this so well. So we saw this, you know, people from Singapore, people from, um, from many parts of Asia that live in Australia or have come to Australia from other parts of, of the world were putting their masks on and doing this because they've done it before. They had the, the SARS outbreaks, they had the MERS outbreaks. So they knew exactly what to do. And we were sort of, you know, chuffing along like, ha, 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 look at all these people in masks. We're so much more clever than you are. And, of course, they were the ones that were way smarter than what we were, way more experienced in doing it right. And what they, what, you know, friends who've been in Singapore, for example, were telling me that the the etiquette of putting on a mask outside after those outbreaks of, of SARS and MERS was that if you were feeling unwell, you put a mask on. So you weren't expecting everyone else to wear a mask all of the time. Um, and it certainly isn't the case that after those outbreaks that everyone went outside with masks on. But if you were feeling unwell, if you were getting those sort of those um, symptoms that we often get, honestly, here in Geelong at this time of year, a lot of us get hay fever and I've certainly got a bit of it. But, you know, if you're feeling a bit snuffly or you've got a bit of a headache and you need to go outside, you put a mask on, not for you, for everyone else. And it's that social etiquette, that social contract that says we are all in this together and I don't want to pose a risk to you. And wouldn't that be nice? That would be a nice touch, I think, if that could take that forward. Um, that would make an enormous difference to a whole lot of people. In the Premier's media conference, there was a few lines that have been used before, and I seem to remember some of them being used this time last year. One that particularly struck uh, a resonance with me, and maybe it's just because I have a long memory, is when he said the lightest touch possible about this new era of restrictions post 90%. And I think that's what he said about what summer was going to look like last year. And clearly, Last year, it didn't entirely go to plan when in February we ended up back in a lockdown in Victoria. So I'm just wondering, how trusting do you think people will be of hearing that and hearing this idea that we're going to be out of lockdown permanently? And more importantly, for some of the industries coming back, how confident will people be in booking holidays You know, in three months' time, six months' time, and so on? Yeah, I think it's going to take us a while, Mitch. I really do. Not everyone. Uh, some people will jump on it as soon as they can and they'll be excited by you know, getting as much freedom as they can. Let's face it, a whole lot of people are probably already taking quite a few of those freedoms already. So um, I don't think it's going to be too much of a stretch for for some people. But I think in general, there will be an awful lot of people that will be taking their time. I Look, I think we do. I think we do genuinely believe that the intention of the government for most of us is that they do want to have a light touch. I mean, I think they have done what they said they would do all the way along. It's just that for a whole lot of people that wasn't a particularly nice thing to have happened but it, you know it's not the government's job to be nice governments of any persuasions um doing the right thing is often not a nice thing and we tend to get those concepts confused i think but they've said that that's what they were going to do in the same way that they said when vaccinations ramped up then uh, the kind of freedoms that were rolled back and those those health orders that were rolled in would be pulled back and that's 
kind of what we've seen. So I'm fully prepared to take them at their words that they will have every intention of it being a light touch, but they didn't start this pandemic. Um, they can't fix it and they don't know what's coming. So that we've got a window ahead where we've been able to see what's happened in the other parts of the world, particularly the Northern Hemisphere, that obviously they are now ramping into their winter, but we're operating back from their last summit. So we've got a bit of an idea of the kind of things that happened there, the things that saw England have huge outbreaks, but saw numbers dropping fairly significantly in a lot of the European countries, um, really mixed bag in the United States where some places where things like masks and social distance remained as part of that social contract between people, say uh, a lot of the northern part of the of the United States, but then down south, it was a bit more of a free-for-all. And of course, they had very high numbers and very high hospitalizations. So and high death rates. Um, goes without saying, you know, a lot of people rolling into hospital saying, I didn't think this virus was real and can you please vaccinate me now before they're getting intubated? Well, no, obviously you can't vaccinate someone when they're unwell. But um, so we can learn those lessons and we should. We should be really taking note of those. But for all of us, none of us know what is exactly going to come. We, what I think we can be confident about is that next year is going to be better than this year and that's enough for me. And in terms of the people that have chosen not to get vaccinated for whatever reason that might be, first of all, I think we have to be aware of how big or small the issue is, and it's now less than 10% of the population or the adult mm. population. Uh, I think some media outlets and some people on social media like to make out like it's a much bigger figure than that. But um, I'm still not entirely clear, and I haven't looked through it in detail, what services they'll still be able to access. Clearly, they won't be able to access a lot of cafes, indoor dining, entertainment venues. I think they can still go to supermarkets, but I'm just wondering how that um, aspect of it's going to play out. Yeah, it was, well, effectively, they stay at pre, you know, pre-ending of lockdown settings. Um, they are, there are some things that they can access. There are those sort of, you know, straightforward, uh, obviously, you know, food, medical care, these things can all be accessed with masks um, if you're not vaccinated would be the, would be the expectation. Uh, I don't know. I've got a green tick and I don't know how many people have seen it yet, Mitch, to be honest. I no one's it. checked mine over the weekend, to be honest, yeah. and I think they're meant to, but no venue that I've been into has. And I think we're, I think we're asking way too much of businesses and staff, and, I, and particularly staff, I would say. You know, I'm, I don't want a 15-year-old having to walk up to people and say, hey, have you got a vaccination green tick? If not, you can't come out. And then potentially being on the end of a barrage. Um, that isn't what we pay them for. They certainly aren't paid enough to do it. And it's not their job. That's And it shouldn't be. Um, but that being said, I don't think it should be the job of the business owner to police that ne- or necessarily the police who have their own job to do and their own social contract with all of us. I think it's got to the point where when we start to talk about numbers over 90%, that responsibility comes fairly and squarely back on the individual. You know, if you were suffering from a really bad flu, is it okay for you to walk into a cafe and sit there coughing and spluttering and sharing that around? What would we have thought of that two years ago? Would we have thought that that's okay? Probably not. Um, would we think, do we like it when people walk into a into a cinema for instance and you're sitting there watching a movie and you can hear sneezing coughing 
that sort of thing going on, you know, sometimes that's innocuous. It might be someone with asthma, it might be someone with allergies and it's not catching at all. But a lot of the time it is. A lot of the time it's just people with a virus that just go, oh, well, stuff you. Um, and you know what? If you sat there with a mask on, that's probably okay. You're probably not going to share it with people. If you're washing your hands and you're putting your mask on, chances of you spreading that virus are, are a hell of a lot smaller. Are people that don't believe in the vaccine or the people who feel that they have the right to make that choice for themselves, um, are they the kind of people that are going to turn around and, and engage in that social licence? I think that's a mixed bag. I don't think it's as black and white as, you know, you believe, you don't believe, you're okay, you're you're an anti-vaxxer or you're, you know, you're fully vaccine supportive. I think there's lots of people out there who, even people who have the vaccine, who still believe that it should be a choice. Um, you know, that's that's something that's going to play out over time. But we're all individuals and and how we approach things and how we think about things will be different to each other. And I think that's okay. Where it's not okay is, A, when you're putting other people at risk. Um, that's a pretty unacceptable one for mine. So, and I think where people are spreading misinformation, um, lies, or just directing anger and fury at the local cafe that says, hi, we've been told that we have to enforce this because we do know that checks are going ahead. They are absolutely. Fines are being handed out absolutely. And they're big. You know, if you're a cafe and you're getting a $10,000 fine, but you barely got, you know, you had your your income cut by 70, 80, 90% last for the last two years. And all of a sudden you've got a $10,000 fine on top of it. And you're having to ramp up how much you're paying your staff because you can't get as many of them. And the, the pool of people available to do those jobs is smaller. Is it fair? Because someone sits there and says, well, it's my choice. Well, what about their choices? So I think the social contract is bigger than, um, than just who's going to mandate this green tick. I think every single one of us needs to mandate that green tick and, and you know, start to make some decisions about what does it mean to live around other people and to have a responsibility for them, you know. But then again, I'm a bit mean, Mitch, because personally I'm with the AMA. I would turn around and say, if you don't want to be part of the public health response, I don't have any problem with that. But then you opt out of the public system. So you're either in it or you're out of it. If you don't like it, that's okay. If you if you choose to opt out of it, that's okay. Um, you're probably going to get a bit of a shock when you see what happens when services that you would normally claim under Medicare are no longer there for you. You know, I think in, in a lot of ways that's... Uh, a stupid standpoint um, on on my part. Logically, I know that, of course, people going and, and being, uh, you know, really proactive about their health is incredibly important. I think that public health and the Medicare system is one of the greatest things about our country and the way that we have that social contract with each, with each other. It's always appalling when you look at places like, you know, what America had for not very long ago and in many parts of America I think is still there where people cannot afford to go and get preventative health care, do the basics of, you know, being terrified of going to a hospital or getting sick because they can't afford it. You know, no one should have the issue of I can't afford to get sick. Um, so we don't want that to happen, but, yeah, it can be frustrating. Yeah, I, yeah. I mean, I just can't see how that would play out if you were to deny people that chose not to get vaccinated no, access to Medicare and, you know, if you had people sick and they couldn't access a hospital. I just I don't think it's a very practical idea, but I it's good to have it at a philosophical agree. level. Yeah, I absolutely agree. I, I, I would probably rail against it as well, and I rail against myself for thinking it, but that thought is still there and it still comes up, I think, when people start to throw around the this is my choice and my choices, you know, people shouldn't be able to 
force those choices on me um, without acknowledging that but by doing that, you are making a choice and you are forcing your choices on other people as well. So if you're willing to have that conversation at that level, I think that's fine. Um, if you're saying that this is the black and white line, I'm going to step over it because no one should be able to make those choices for me. It's my choice. You're completely ignoring that those choices have consequences for people that are not you. Moving on to talking about net zero, it's clearly an important issue, an issue of interest, but also it's a long-term question. Um, But I'm just wondering how you hold people to account on whether they actually deliver net zero when the current crop of politicians aren't going to be in parliament in 2015. Has anyone gone back to 1992 to check whether what they promised back then for 2021 has actually been followed through? Yeah, look, I mean, these, all of these targets that are set at these big meetings, they, they are reported on um, they, and they are reported back at these meetings as well. And that's kind of the point of having a rolling system of these meetings is that there are checks and balances that are brought into place in it. Uh, you know, there's, there's still a lot to play out in this space, Mitch. There absolutely is, but it's really positive. Um, it's an acknowledgement at a government level from you know, from a Prime Minister that once walked into Parliament holding a piece of coal and saying, you don't need to be afraid of this, um, to now be saying we need net zero, feels like a, a bit of a quietening of the anger and the fear around climate change. I think that's probably the most powerful thing that we will see in Australia. In terms of our move to net zero, it was always going to happen. It actually didn't matter whether the government wanted to do it or not. Banks aren't going to lend money. Businesses aren't going to invest um, people are going to make good choices for themselves, as they have already in Australia. We're one of the highest uptakes of rooftop solar in the world, and I, you know, I think we've only got started on that. I think we'll end up with the most batteries of anywhere in the world, the home-based batteries of anywhere in the world. I think we will have an enormous resources sector built around wind energy, hydro, um, hydrogen, clean hydrogen, really genuinely clean hydrogen, not the pretend green hydrogen where you burn fossil fuels and then make hydrogen out of it. Um, You know, these things I think will be a a huge part of Australia's future because it's what the world needs and it's what we've got. And that's exactly the reason why we have the resources sector that we have. I mean, it's not because someone turned around and said, oh, hey, coal looks like fun or, you know, iron ore looks like fun. No, the rest of the world really wanted it. We had it. We sold it. We got into this weird space where we thought it's the only thing that we could do or that everything would fall apart if we didn't do it. But if you step back, the kind of fundamentals that make renewable energy are right here in Australia. Um, Is there anything that you're looking at this Glasgow summit for and waiting to see if certain things are met? Because there's been ones uh, in the past where people have gone in with very high aspirations, expectations, and on occasions they haven't been met. So is there anything in particular that you're looking at this summit to see? Well, I guess what I'm really looking for is that, um, that really clear and quite um, speedy or timely steps towards a global system that supports the trade in genuinely renewable energy um call it a carbon tax call it a whatever whatever the 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 mechanism of that is that's what we need because having a whole lot of governments who say we are going to be net zero that's fantastic and that's the baseline but fundamentally to stop 
the argy-bargy to stop the, you know, we're looking over there, but they're emitting more on us or, you know, yes, we're doing this, but, oh, by the way, Australia is going to reach net zero by selling off a whole lot of its carbon credits to or its carbon outputs to someone else. Um, that's not really getting the job done. What's, what gets the job done is the fundamentals of, of trade, of commerce, of systems that has a, a checks and balance and, and puts it into it in exactly the same way that we did with the global trade in energy. The global trade in energy is underpinned by things like uh, huge, huge amounts of government money in Australia that gets fed back through the, those carbon-intensive industries um, to keep them in Australia and to keep that those that tax money effectively, those mineral rents rolling back into the government coffers. That doesn't just happen. It happens because the government's got a system of supporting that, and then it goes onto a global uh, a, a global world trade system that has a whole lot of rules, a whole lot of checks and balances about how that works. At the moment, we don't have that yet for the renewable sector, and I think the sooner we get that done, um, the sooner that it's logical and practical and speaks to the drivers of economics and I am by no means an economist (laughs) there are people who are eminently smarter than me that um, absolutely hit the pay grade of being able to to make these sort of decisions and understand how these systems work but when you stand back it's a bit like you know it's a bit like the fundamental tax system in Australia a whole lot of people invest in housing in Australia because we've got a tax system that makes it work for them a whole lot of people will invest in renewable energies and will trade renewable energies globally and therefore ramp up rapidly. The rise in renewable energies, the rise in green technologies that absorb carbon um, that will, you know, go to things like protecting the daintree that will make it economically viable and rewarding to do the kinds of things like creating a, a whole of life for products. So um, circular economy around plastics, that sort of thing where we reduce, reuse, recycle all of that sort of stuff, they're lovely, lovely catchphrases, but they really happen when there's a monetary system and an economic and trade system that backs it up and makes it really, really good for people to invest in it. And just finally, the great resignation. This is a term that's being thrown around to describe our employment market at the moment. And I was wondering if you've heard any talk about this locally in Geelong, because it would seem that here in regional Victoria and in metropolitan Melbourne, you've been working hard during the week when there haven't been any restrictions. And then the restrictions seem to come in during the weekend and we go into lockdown. So suddenly you're just sitting around at home on the weekends. And I think people aren't getting that time to really recharge if you're in that traditional nine to five job. So burnout, very real. And people are saying, I quit and not necessarily having something to come back to on the other side of a career break. Yeah, burnout is incredibly real. Um, that really strong sense of fatigue that I think for for people right across our community, I know I'm feeling it and I'm sure you are too, Mitch, um, and I'm seeing it everywhere around me, friends, family, kids, all of us, I think, are, are carrying a weight of fatigue and a weight of burnout. And it's not surprising that this is the time where we turn around and look at our jobs and say, you know what, the idea of going back five days in an office to jumping in the car and you know, or doing that commute to Melbourne, do I really want to be doing that? Do I really want to be jetting off every six weeks or do I really want to be working till eight o'clock at night in the office and then getting it home and not seeing the kids? You know, big changes in the world. Of course, we're going to be looking at, at that. And this, and we've seen this play out again in all around the world, particularly across Europe and into America. This is a real thing, the, that big resignation. I think it is absolutely going to happen. 
we are going to sit there and reevaluate and look at how things are. I think what's, and that's not surprising, but I think what is surprising is that as we ramp up and with the Premier's announcement, particularly around that November 26th, when we start to talk about there being no restrictions, um, people not having to wear masks in the office, because that is a, that is a hamper. It is difficult for people to overcome that barrier. Um, and I think that's reasonable too. But the expectation is that for those people whose job lives in an office, then I'm surprised at for how much of them that expectation has stayed the same. As soon as those restrictions are lifted, when we get to that point, you will all be back in the office. It will be effectively business as normal or as it was for us. Um, the problem with that, of course, is that the world isn't what it was and it isn't normal and we don't really know what the new normal is going to be, but I don't think the new normal is going to be just a, a blanket acceptance of that situation. So I've been really surprised to hear how many um, people have started to look at that option of an ongoing flexible working arrangement, whether that's, you know, one day a week, two days a week at home, whether it's half days, whether it's um, a little bit of juggling or people switching around their hours to even just to be able to be accommodated in workspaces that, let's face it, often don't accommodate the whole number of people who work in those workspaces. We had that big shift towards the open, modern, you know, shared desk environment, which has um, turned out to be a bit of a disaster and terrible waste of money. But, um, yeah, but then the feedback that I'm getting is that it is really difficult to to make those arrangements and it feels like for the for the people that I've been speaking to like it's been made deliberately difficult so that people are effectively forced to go back into the office for those five days and what I was really surprised about again was uh, if you had have asked me six months ago 12 months ago who would have been the ones that would take on board the flexible working arrangements um, that I've been lucky enough to enjoy for the last 15 or so years I would have thought it would have been local councils, government, government organisations, those sort of, you know, generally a little bit more progressive um, workplaces, those places that are quite heavily unionised in a lot of ways as well. So I would have thought that they would have been the ones that would have been making the shift, but apparently not. Um, the ones that I do know of people who are making these arrangements tend to be more in the professional services or in businesses where they've, you know, the business owners have turned around and said, yeah, I love this idea of working remotely. It works really well for me. My staff can go and look after their kids or can be there for them when they need to be. Um, they're grateful for that. So then they work really hard when they're at home and it won't work for everyone. Not, you can't do it in every job. You know, that's a given. It's none of these things are blanket, but an awful lot of the bureaucratic work is effectively conversations and computers and files and online systems that people can access from everywhere as we have been for the last two years. And I've been really surprised at that uh, that move to make things difficult. And I know, you know, here in Geelong, a number of local councils are from those reports that I'm getting from people that work in them. Um, a whole lot of workforces sitting there saying, "Well, why is it so hard for me to work from home one, one and a half, two days a week?" Do you think employers that force people to come back for five days a week are going to shoot themselves in the foot because they could lose a lot of good staff in the process too? This great resignation and the employers offering flexibility will win out. Absolutely. I think it's going to be a lot of things, Mitch. I think it's, you know, as soon as you give people a reason to start looking, given the fact that we don't have a huge raft of skilled migrants in the country at the moment, um, things are going to ramp up really quickly, which means that the employment market is going to ramp up really quickly. And when you give people options, if you're giving them a reason to think about going to look somewhere else, they're not going to need a big one because the fear of not being able to find work isn't there at the moment. For most people, and again, not everyone, don't want to generalise um, or to minimise, you know, the, the struggles of people. 
particularly after the last two years. But, you know, in general, the employment conditions are pretty good in a lot of sectors and will get better. And that means that people will automatically start looking. They will start to say, am I earning enough? Am I happy with the hours I'm working? Does it give me what I need? Is this what I want to be doing for the next five or 10 years Um, or even two years? People are going to look at it. So giving them a reason to say, you know, you're making this difficult. To me, this feels reasonable. Um, I think if you're starting to trigger that, yep, this doesn't feel very reasonable moment, then you're probably saying to someone, or giving someone that very small push that they need to go and have a look at the jobs market. So, yeah, I think there's going to be huge moves. Well, thank you very much for being on the program. Really appreciate it. And we'll talk to you in two weeks' time. And maybe by then we'll be very close to this 90% threshold, which I'm assuming means we don't have any density limits on people coming into the studios anymore. So that would be exciting, wouldn't it? Oh, it would be nice to see your face, Mitch. And, hey, how does that sound? Like when you think about it, that, you know, we the 90% threshold, we use those words and don't really think about what that means. That means that at least 9 in 10 people you work, you walk past have had a vaccine. That's amazing. It is, isn't it? It is. It is. Absolutely. I've, yeah, kind of, you know, we took a while, but, geez, haven't we done well now? Certainly have. Thank you very much. Appreciate it very much. Thanks, Mitch. Take care. I look forward to seeing you in the flesh pretty soon. Davina Montgomery there and maybe will be with us at some point in the future in the flesh when we can have more studio guests when those density limits change, particularly at 90%. The Mitchell's Front Page Podcast is brought to you by Geelong Bank. Listen live on 94.7 The Pulse, Mondays and Tuesdays from 9 to 11. Or search for Mitchell's Front Page on Facebook, Twitter, Instagram or wherever you get your podcasts.